Here's how I break it down. After a zillion readings, I finally said, you know what? I keep seeing patterns over and over and over again. And again, let me remind you, this class is built on how many pieces of paper? One side of one page. Our content is one side of one piece of paper. I can't think of any other institute class that is built on such small document. Today we're gonna to focus, I, I wanna focus on a single word of that document and the power of that single word. But as I've read through the documents, I've read through the proclamation, my summary is that this is full of war declarations. We declare, here is an eternal truth. In other words, they are declaring scripture. We declare, we warn, and we counsel. So here's the warning, here's the counsel, and here are the statements of truth. So what I want to do today is, going back to that last paragraph, we warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse and offspring, who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable for, before God. I am going to ask today that we all have an is it I attitude. I think when we talk about, you know, we've been talking about the fact that this document is a proclamation that the brethren with their Syriac eyes, prophets, seers, and revelators see that the greatest threats of the future are targeting what? Not your money, not your time. The greatest threat that prophets, seers, and revelators see coming is targeting your family. And I think when I say that, most of us think that the problem is coming from without. That they are seeing threats from outside attacking my family. And I certainly agree. There are threats outside my family trying to attack my family. But I want to start at the very core and invite us all to realize perhaps the greatest threats they see coming are attacking the family from within. It is not someone else that is my enemy. I am the enemy. I am the biggest threat to my family. Let me say that again. I believe part of what they are saying is the biggest threat to our families is what we do to our families. So I would plead tonight that we have an is it I attitude. Do you remember when Jesus during the Last Supper announced, one of you is going to betray me? None of them did what you and I would probably do. None of them pointed and said, I know who it is. I know who's going to betray you. Every one of them said what? It's me, isn't it? I'm the problem here. 
And I think there's a grown-up moment to say, okay, when it comes to broken families, the threat isn't them. The threat is me. As the patriarch in my family, how much responsibility to keep that family from the threats relies on my shoulders because I'm the biggest problem. Members of the family are the biggest threat to the family. So here's where I want to begin. Knowing, knowing that they say, we warn, we warn, we warn. And I want to start with, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. So the very first paragraph, I have found incredible significance in, you're the problem, Bryce. You are the problem. Every one of us needs to realize I'm the problem. So what's the standard? If you were to pull out one word from that paragraph, what word seems to draw your attention? Central. Central. That word, every time I've asked that question, I'm always like, please say the right, right, please say the right word. <laughs> if someone's gonna say the, I'd be like, okay, we gotta, Every time I ask that question, and every time someone says that same word, that word is central. So let me ask a question. Tell me where Heavenly Father puts his family. Give me evidence. Where does Heavenly Father put his family? Moses 1.39. This is my work and my glory. To do what? Bring to pass the, the salvation and the eternal life of my children. What is his central work? Where does he spend his majority of his time? Where do gods spend their days? So where has Heavenly Father put family? Central. Is it in the center of his heart? Would you say that Heavenly Father has put family at the center of his heart. Check. How about his priorities? Is family the center of his priorities? That's pretty obvious, right? How about his attention? Is family the center of his attention? Yes. How about his plan? Would you say that Heavenly Father has put family at the center of his plan? Therefore, can I make a suggestion that if I want to go to the celestial kingdom, I need to become the kind of person that puts family central. And there is, I think, one of the biggest warnings. One of the biggest warnings in the very first paragraph is you are not putting family where God puts family. And because of that, there's going to be a problem. So I asked myself in preparation for tonight, what are gospel messages? 
think through the scriptures. What are some gospel messages that we often apply to other subjects that really ought to be applied to keeping the family central? And I really, really struggled to limit this list, and I finally whittled it down to nine. (laughs) So we have about 30 minutes, and I've got nine on my list, and I don't think we can do nine, but we'll just do our try. I just asked myself, what are lessons, prominent scriptural lessons, that we often apply to something else that we really ought to apply to keeping the family central in my life? So I'm going to see if I can write these as either statements or requests or to-dos. Statement number one, everything else come to naught. Everything else will come to naught. Now, that's a scriptural phrase, come to naught. Come to naught. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to cut in a few weeks, we'll be in Acts chapter 5 and come follow me. This is Jesus is gone, and Peter is now defending the church. Peter is now the chief apostle. And we're going to have a bunch of confrontations with the, the Pharisees. They thought Christianity was dead when Jesus was crucified. Now they're having to deal with Peter and John and the apostles, and they're realizing that Christianity is not dead, and so they're contending. And so they come to Gamaliel, a brilliant doctor of the law who trained Paul, and they say, what should we do with these guys? Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. New Testament, Acts chapter 5. What should we do with these guys? What should we do with Peter and John? They keep preaching in the name of Jesus. Gamaliel taught them a brilliant doctrine. I don't think he realized how significant his doctrine was. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 34. Anyone want to read? What should we do with Peter and John and these Christians who keep throwing Jesus in our face? Start in 34. Yeah, you just keep going. Ooh, do you see that phrase? I mean, we're going to continue to read this, then we'll talk about it. Keep going. After this man rose up, Judas of Galilee, in the days of taxing, and threw away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I stand to you, refrain from these men, and let them alone, for this counsel or this work be of men, and will come to know. One more, 37, 39. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. 
Okay, so his counsel about what to do with James and or Peter and John was what? Leave them alone because why? Gamaliel knew an eternal truth. What was his truth? If it's of man, it will come to naught. That was his phrase. He said, brought to naught and come to naught. Meaning what? What's, that? What's the point? Everything else in your life will come to naught. Let me give you an example. I love my iPad. It is one of my absolute favorite devices. But will this device outlive my family? But can you see that in my heart, I could favor the device over, say, a child who wanted to play with it? What? No way! Or a child who misused it? I might be overly aggressive in punishing the child because he harmed my iPad. Now, do you see the irony about that? What's the irony about that? Someday that iPad is going to die and end. But that child, my relationship with that child will not. So do you know the difference between things that will come to naught? And let me throw one more phrase in. Hold on, Sarah. We'll get you in two seconds. Go back to chapter four. What's the opposite phrase? Look at verse 11. There's another phrase I want to point out. Come to naught and set at naught. Come to naught and set at naught. Do you understand both those phrases? This iPad is no is in undoubtedly going to come to naught. But I might overinflate its value and do what with the child who broke it? Set at naught. But that relationship with the child will never come to naught. Do you see the difference between mistaking what will and won't come to naught and setting at naught? Go ahead, Sarah. I have kind of an experience like that, maybe a little more serious, unless I don't know how much you love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I work two jobs. I'm a single mom, and I'm going to school, BYU-Idaho, and I'm overwhelmed. There's too much, and I was praying, like, something's got to give. Help me know what to give. Does one of the jobs need to go? What do I do? And I, after taking this class last week, I I felt like I'm not spending enough time with my kids, but I'm working to support them. Which is a good thing. And I'm going to school. Which is a good thing. To make more money to support them. That, I'm doing everything for my family. Right. But it's not working because I don't even see them. Yeah. So I was on my knees praying, Heavenly Father, help me know what to give up. And the very distinct impression was to drop a class. Next semester, I'm not taking two. I'm going to take one. That's how important my kids are yeah. to delay my education a little, which is so such, important to Heavenly Father. Yeah. I was like, lesson learned. Yeah, such a great example because schooling, jobs, the need to provide financially for my family, all of that will come to naught. But the family itself will not. 
So are you setting at naught the important things and overvaluing the things that will come to naught? Let me give you another example. Turn to 1 Nephi 19, 7 through 9. 1 Nephi 19, 7 through 9. Even the Son of Man, even the Savior, do some people set at naught. Notice the wording, come to naught, set at naught. First Nephi 19, 7 through 9. Anyone want to read? This is Nephi at his best. Go ahead. For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set at naught and trample under, under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him up not, and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. And behold, he cometh, according to the words of an angel, in six hundred years from the time my father left Jerusalem. And the, and the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore, they scourge him, and he suffered it. And they smite him, and he suffered it. Yet they spit upon him, and suffered it. Because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children. In other words, his love, his atoning sacrifice will never, will never come to naught. And yet that very thing, other people set at naught. Do you see the play on words? Now, when we built the Salt Lake Temple, do you know how thick the walls are at the base? When we built this massive granite temple, do you know how thick we made the walls? Why would we make the walls that thick? It needs to last. Do you realize what we're doing right now? We lifted that temple up and changed the foundation. How many buildings could just be lifted up like that? Not very many, but that building is tough. We built that building so that it would last for a long time. I would imagine that building will survive the second coming and live long into the second the millennium. And yet, that building will come to naught. And yet the families we create within it will not. Do you see the temptation? Now, what's the problem? What's Heavenly Father saying to me? Bryce, don't set at naught the things that in the end will come to naught. Can I make a confession? A very painful confession. I had a brother that was four years younger than I am. And all my life, I set him at naught. The annoying little brother. I set him at naught. My friends were more important than my brother. Now ask me how many of those friendships that I valued more than my brother, I still have today. Not one of them. But I lost my brother. My brother ended his life. And I am praying for the chance to fix that relationship. 
and never again set him at naught. I pray he'll forgive me and give me another chance to show what I truly value. Everything else I valued when I set him at naught has come to naught. Don't make that mistake. Do not make the mistake of setting at naught the things that will never come to naught. Powerful lesson, right? How about the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles? Is that an eternal organization that will last for eternity? The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Will Russell Nelson be an apostle for all of eternity? What will he be for all of eternity? A father, a husband, a son, a brother. Okay, that leads me to number two. Ready? This one can be a painful lesson for many people. Bless their hearts. This can be a painful message. Family is more important than even church callings. Amen. Here's the problem. People associate my calling in the church to my relationship with God. Now, is God more important than my children? What was the first commandment? Love God. What was the second commandment? So is it more important to love Heavenly Father? Not that it's a competition, but if I had to choose, which would I choose? All of you that are serving a mission chose Him over your family, right? The problem is we associate our love of God with our calling in the church, and we often assume that my calling trumps my family. Can I show you a very, very painful lesson that Joseph Smith and the First Presidency were taught? Doctrine and Covenant section 93. Doctrine and Covenant section 93. Now, the First Presidency consists of, who's the president? Joseph Smith. Who's the first counselor? Sidney Rigdon. Anyone know the second counselor? Frederick G. Williams. Frederick G. Williams is the second counselor in the first presidency. The modern equivalent of Henry B. Eyring. So we're going to speak to Henry B. Eyring. Ready? Let's go to section 93. I want to start in verse 40. Henry B. Eyring, Frederick G. Williams, second counselor in the church first presidency. I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. But verily I say unto my servant, Frederick D. Williams, you have, you have continued under this condemnation. Notice the word this, condemnation. You have not taught your children light and truth. According to the commandments, and that wicked one hath power as yet over you, and this is the cause of your affliction. Now a commandment I give unto you. Be a better first, second counselor in the first presidency. Is that what he's saying? Be a better second counselor. It's okay if your family's falling apart because you're the second counselor in the first presidency. Is that what he's saying? What's he saying? 
set in order. I love the play on words here. Set in order your own house, for there are many things that are not right in your house. Did it matter what kind of job he was doing in the first presidency? It didn't matter. What mattered was his family was being neglected. What did the Lord just say about being second counselor in the first presidency versus being a father? All right, who's next? First counselor in the first presidency. This is the equivalent of Dallin H. Oaks, the first counselor. Sidney Rigdon, I say unto my servant, Sidney Rigdon, that in some things he hath not kept the commandments concerning his children. Therefore, tell me the word he says here. Why the word first? Why the word first? First set in order your house. Why the word first? And you have not put it central. What's central? Maybe it's first counselor position. Maybe it's calling in the church. Maybe it's whatever. And the Lord says, uh-uh, first set in order your house. God put family central. What should never be central? Calling in the church. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to lead the music in the that's my fa- I have my favorite calling right now. I lead the music in the primary and I hope I never get released. Is That's right. Yep. Can I even put a twist on that? What if she goes to the terrestrial kingdom? Does that change? No. No. She will forever be Katie's sister. Never released. First set in order your house. All right, who's next? The president. Joseph Smith, verily I say unto my servant Joseph Smith, or in other words, I'll call you friends, for you are my friends, and ye shall inherit with me. I called you servants. Let's jump down to verse 48. Your family must needs repent and forsake some things. And then verse 49, notice what the Lord's doing. What I say unto one, I say unto all. Hello, people. If I'm rebuking the first presidency because they're not putting their family central, then I'm rebuking everyone. Now, just so you know, who's Newell Whitney? The first bishop. One of the first two bishops. Edward Partridge was the other. Newell K. Whitney was the other first bishop. And he says to the first bishop, you hath need to be chastened and set in order his family and see that they are more diligent and concerned at home. Do you see the temptation, even in the church, the temptation is to set family at naught over what? My calling. But my calling will 
come to naught. And the family I'm setting a naught never will. Do you see the temptation? Okay, so number one, everything else will come to naught. Number two, family is more important than even church callings. Therefore, I'm going to add number three. Family must be nourished, not neglected. Where am I going with that one? Does that ring a bell? Nourish, neglect, nourish, neglect. That ring a bell? Alma 32, the seed, the tree. Let's now make a leap and say that the tree we're growing is the eternal family. So turn with me to Alma chapter 32. Alma chapter 32, verses 37 and 38. Both N-words. I have two N-words. I can do two things with the tree. And in this case, we're going to apply it with to my family. I can do two things to my family. Number one, what's the first N-word? I can. 37. Nourish. nourish. I can nourish family relationships. Families like trees need nourishment. You cannot look the other way. If you have a beloved plant and you ignore it, guess what? It dies. Families without nourishment die. Families must be nourished. One of the ways to keep family central is to nourish it. Now, let's you, let me play with the analogy here because I love the analogy. Give me the verbs here. Let me pull up Alma. I'm going to do this in PDF so I can zoom in. All right, Alma 32. Let's zoom in to 37. Ready? All right. Behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, you will say, let us nourish with great care that it may. Watch what happens. If I nourish. Give me the flow chart here. If I nourish my family, it will get root. Think of a family like a tree. Or a plant. If I nourish my family, it will get root. Now, if it gets root, what happens? If it gets root, it will, it will grow. My family, my relationship was, will grow to the point that they will bring forth fruit. And there's the fruit I get to nourish myself on. If I nourish my family, it will get root, it will grow, and it will grow. It will produce fruit. Now, what happens if I neglect? If I neglect a relationship, if I neglect my spouse, I neglect a child, if I neglect a family relationship, tell me, give me the, let's do the exact words here. But if you neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will no roots. And if it doesn't have roots, 
the heat of the sun will scorch it. And if it's scorched, it will wither. And when it withers, I wish I could circle this. Maybe I should. I'm going to circle a word that I think is fascinating here. Ready? If it nourish, if it withers, who plucks it away? I pluck it. I pluck it. I pluck it and cast it out. Now, do you see that happening with families all around you? How many people are plucking a withered family out and throwing it away? Isn't that what you do with withered plants? You pluck and cast. And here's the thing. Everyone who ever plucks it and casts it out blames the seed. Why did it wither? I didn't neglect it. I didn't nourish it. Can I teach you how to grow cotton in Arizona? I lived in Arizona for eight years and I just, I learned how to grow cotton. It was the most fascinating thing I've ever learned. How to grow cotton in Arizona. So I lived among a whole bunch of cotton fields. And so the first thing you do when you want to grow cotton in Arizona is you furrow your rows. And then you irrigate. For two weeks, you irrigate dirt. I watched them irrigate dirt for two weeks. And my arrogant Utah, you know, Utah know-it-all everything said, um, you're irrigating. Yeah. What, did you plant? No. You haven't planted? No. There's no seed in the ground? No. And you're irrigating? Yes. You're irrigating dirt? Correct. You're irrigating nothing but dirt? Correct. Okay. And then they planted and stopped irrigating for two weeks. They irrigate for two weeks, plant, and then stop irrigating. And my arrogant Utah attitude, what? So you, you, you just planted, yes? And you stopped irrigating, correct. So you watered dirt for two weeks, planted, and stopped watering. Correct. Now that the seed's in the ground, you're not watering. Yes, but you water dirt. Correct. Two weeks, you water dirt, and now that the seed's in the ground, you're not watering. Correct. <laughs> and luckily, the farmer became one of my dearest friends, and he knew I was the seminary teacher in town, and so he smiled and said, I want you to figure that out. It took me years to figure it out. And finally, it dawned on me. Here's my mound. Where is the water level when they plant? Because they've irrigated for two weeks, where's the water level in the ground? All the way up to the top. And then they put the seed in and they stop watering. What's going to happen when they stop watering? The water in the ground is going to recede. And the what? What? The root is going to chase the water. If they kept watering, 
Tell me what the root would do. What would the plant do? I don't have to go very deep because the water's right here. But by not watering, they force that plant to have deep roots so that when it's 115 degrees out, why does that cotton grow so plentifully in Arizona? Because it has deep roots. In other words, this is not nearly as strong as this. Now, what happens if this, the outer, is much stronger than the inner? What direction is that tree going to go? It's withering. Now, how many families are doing that? How many families cannot keep up with the heat of the outside? Social media is, all, is one of them. If I'm not nourishing my family, I'm, I'm doing what? I'm neglecting. And what happens to plants you neglect? They die. I don't know if you've ever read Alma 32 and applied the tree to your family, but that's my invitation. The tree you're growing is the one and only thing that will never, ever come to naught unless you neglect it. And then it'll, you'll cast it out. All right, there's three. We got six more. We got three minutes. All right, let me... What do I do on my list? Okay, let's do Luke 10. Let's do this one. Turn with me to Luke 10. This is one we can do in three minutes. Maybe we do one more week at this. How about we just take one more week and talk about keeping the family central and gospel messages that will help me do so. Let's do Luke, Luke chapter 10. I love this story. You've all seen Mary sitting at Jesus' feet where Martha's saying, hey, tell her to stop sitting there, right? You all love the story. So let's go there. Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha. Now, kind of applying the same idea to set at naught and come to naught. Verse 38, now it came to pass as they went, they entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. And Martha was cumbered about much serving. Martha was cumbered about much serving. Give me the footnote on cumbered. It's, Ooh, I don't have one. what's the footnote on cumbered? Isn't there a footnote on, what's 41A? Oh, it's careful. Okay, never mind. It's coming up. Sorry. Martha was cumbered about much serving. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus, Mar she double, he double names her. Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. I can see him shaking his head, right? Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. You can't say that without shaking your head. Martha, Martha. Thou art... Cumbered, careful, now give me the footnote, worried, and troubled 
about many things. Jobs, school, they cumber, they worry, they trouble, they distress. And Jesus says, one thing is needful. Now, I think that one thing changes from moment to moment. Right now, do you know what's the most needful thing? It's Owen. Owen is my most needful thing. Bryce, Bryce, thou art careful and worried and troubled and cumbered about many things. But one thing right now is more needful than them. Mary hath chosen that good part. And it shall not be taken away from her. I hear Jesus all the time saying to me, one thing is needful. A lot of my classes are online. I teach two online classes. Do you know how long it takes to edit video? It's a long time. It takes hours for just a few minutes. And so sometimes I'm busy editing my videos so I can upload my classes for my job. And my son comes in and says, Dad, will you play? Can we play basketball for a minute? Will you shoot hoops with me for a minute? And my temptation is I can't. I'm troubled. I'm cumbered. I've got to get this video done. And the Lord just gently says, oh, Bryce, Bryce. He double names me. He says, Bryce, Bryce, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But right now, in this moment, one thing is needful. And it's that 11-year-old boy out there alone playing basketball. Choose that good part. And it won't be taken away from you. And so I'm going to put this one as a condition because, you know, sometimes I got to finish this video, Keegan. And he understands that. This is dad's job. But sometimes the most needful thing is to get out on that court and play with that boy and shoot hoops with him. So I'm just going to simply say, do the needful thing. Be careful not to be too cumbered or careful or worried or troubled that you neglect the needful thing. Sometimes... The needful thing is to take the four boys anywhere but home <laughs> so my wife can have an hour to herself. And it doesn't matter what else is going on. What's needful right now is that she gets a few minutes to herself. I know you're busy. I know you guys have homework. I know we're all careful and cumbered and troubled, but you know what? Right now, we're going to go to the Institute and play basketball and mom's going to stay home.
But dad, I got to finish. I know, I know. But what's needful is that mom has a few minutes to herself. What's the needful thing? Keep family central. Heavenly Father does. Does he ever get distracted and forget his family? So keep family central. I bear you my testimony that the biggest threat to the family isn't some outside force. It's us. And it's the little things like being cumbered and troubled or forgetting to nourish or getting caught up in something that's going to come to naught and setting at naught something that won't. May we be wiser and set family at the center is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.